So I spent the afternoon wandering around. I went, I, went, I was flaneuring about. Yes, I went to the Wallace Collection, and in the Wallace Collection is Poussin's painting A Dance to the Music of Time. Plug. <laughs> Not that we need to plug it, but, I, you know, we, we love the books. And ahead of doing the uh, episode about A Dance to the Music of Time, I thought I'd go and have about a About which look. I cannot get more excited about. We can't, we can't talk about it. That's no, the no. tragedy of it that we, until we're ready to go. But when I looked at the painting, I was listening to the audio book of uh, Dance to the Music of Time. If books do furnish a room, which I have read before, but I thought I'd better give it a quick once-over before we, before we do the podcast next week. it was on one and a half speed? It was on 1.25. <laughs> and how, how did you find it, talking really fast? Well, it's okay, because I've read it before. So, to some extent, you sort of... And I read it last year, so I'm sort of reminding myself. Rather, I could just stick it on 2.5. I could stick it on 3. Have you ever listened to it on 3. No. Can you make out any words? Yeah. You can. You get a lot read. Is it chipmunk? No, no, because it's all done digitally. i tell you what is brilliant. I discovered this when I was trying to read The Silmarillion this year. If you're ploughing through a book and you need a bit of help, then if you've got the book open in front of you and you set the audio book to, like, three, you can really motor through it. That's like sort of assisted living. It, <laughs> assisted dying. <laughs> I used to slope off to the Wallace Collection in my lunch break because it was just down... Wigmore Street and, and Manchester Square. What, what's the other most important thing about Manchester Square? Well, it Andy? was number 20 Ma- Manchester Square where? was the headquarters of EMI where, where the front cover of um, Please Please Me, the first Beatles LP was uh, also photographed two, by Angus McBean. Yeah, but the two... <laughs> All the facts. But the two, the two blue and red. Yeah. For, that, that m- most of us who weren't, uh, you know, kind of buying records in the 60s got to know the Beatles from those two... Compilations, didn't we? The blue and the red. That's right. And both the, pho- the photographs of 1962 three Beatles and 1969 Beatles were taken inside number 20 Manchester Square. And were they both taken by Angus McBean or not? Surely not. I think the... F- I don't know about the second one. I yeah. should- oh, now you've put yeah, me on the spot. I, I don't know. Slightly. First one is definitely. Yeah. I actually got inside Manchester 20 Manchester Square when it was the EMI studio once. Only once. Which was in 1990... I went to a signing at Claude Gill in Oxford, <laughs> Oxford Street, Street. Gill. for Chris Heath's book, Pet Shop Boys Literally, oh my God, where, yeah. which was a signing that Neil and Chris did. And then a, a bunch of people went up to Manchester Square in the vague hope that the Pet Shop Boys would return there after they finished their signing. Is Chris Heath the one who did that brilliant Robbie Williams? Yeah, Chris Heath. You know what? There's a book that I would love to do on Backlisted, which is Chris... He's great. He's a great he's a writer, writer, Chris yeah. Heath. His second Pet Shop Boys book, which is called Pet Shop Boys Versus America, which is basically an account of an American tour that they did in the early uh, 90s, where it's basically them just, as Neil Tennant subsequently says in the lyric, bickering about where to have dinner. It is the... Niche. One of the best pop books, though. <laughs> oh, niche, but we're niche. We you like know, niche. we're niche. We, we like, like niche. niche. Um, cool. um, since you ask, I've had a, an emotional and trying week. I had to say goodbye to my dear boar, my pig, Buster, who have has been part of my life for the last eight years and who is old and no longer producing piglets. So I had to wave him goodbye. And I didn't spare anybody on Facebook or Instagram I didn't put it on Twitter, interestingly, because you don't have enough words. 
But I said I didn't spare them the details. He was going off to go to a very good kind of thumbs-up abattoir in Essex. His remains would be taken to Germany where they'd be turned into salami. And actually had a most amazing outpouring of... Uh, of uh, lovely, I mean, really friendly, lovely yeah. stuff from people. Well, obviously, a lot of people who'd known Buster over the years who'd visited my house, but also people who didn't know. It was it was very quite moving actually. I was I had I'd put it up there because I felt I ought to mark it at least for the people who'd known him. But lots of other people weighed in and said, you know, he looked like a lovely. And then, and then people were sharing photographs of me with the pig or their kids <laughs> with the pig. Um, so there you go. Should we just start? Oh, let's just go. Come on, um, go go go. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us backstage at Coney Island, trying to avoid the bugs and the roaches, rigid with fear at the thought of a vaudeville gig we're about to perform. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. Uh, and I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today is the writer, radio producer and co-host of No Such Thing as a Fish. The UK's uh, most successful podcast. Dan Schreiber. Hello, Dan. Hey, thank you for having me. So, you know, we were feeling pretty cocky because we've sold out the LRB bookshop. But then <laughs> you said that you've just, that last year, you sold out the Sydney Opera House. Yeah, yeah, that was this year. I, I didn't believe it myself, so don't worry. I no, we got there. There's presumably. no ego. Yeah, and I, I grew up in Sydney. I was there in my uh, teenage years, and my dad's Australian, so I went to Australian high school. <gasps> So I used to pass this in the Opera House most days and never stood in it, never been in it. That was the first time I've ever been inside. It's the first time my parents have ever seen me on stage doing comedy. It was a, it was pretty solid wow. first outing. Um, Did you used to go past it and think one day there will be a format on a form of hardware that neither of which exists, <laughs> which I will become supreme in and, and I will go into there and be that unknown thing? So... I mean, no, no, <laughs> no, Andy, I didn't. But the the thing I'm, I must declare an interest because I've known Dan now for 16, 17 yeah, years. 16, 17 years. So, in our mad early days of QI, we opened a club in Oxford. We got uh, the kind of email you get from people who say, "I've got a nephew. He's great. He's really cool. He's working in a shop called the Works." Yes, that's right. I he was literally working shop. in the Works. So we went to see Dan and. And we literally fell in love with him because he was like, he, he was a brilliant bookseller. He was working in a uh, remainder shop, but he was so full of passion for everything he did. So we said, well, you should come and work for us. Well, this is excellent because you can join in our, our contribution about... Um, Nikki had a brilliant production idea, everyone. We'd, instead of saying what we've been reading this week, because this episode will go out relatively close to Christmas, that it's an opportunity for us to say, you know, if there's a book you feel like giving somebody as a present, this is a great book that we've read. But I was just complaining to you that... <laughs> I, all I've read is backlisted stuff. Uh, I'm sort oh, yeah, of I, I, well, there's that's... no time at any time in the last month. Uh, well, well there's, there's lovely things we could say. I mean, nobody will be disappointed as they, as my tutor once said brilliantly about a, a friend of mine. Paul embarrasses no one. No one will be embarrassed by getting Sally Rooney's Normal People for Christmas. My favourite mm. book of the year. Is really? it quite right too? What yeah. a brilliant book! I haven't I, read it yet. My wife uh, Fenella loves it. So that's so that's in four votes for for normal people. I'm going to I'm going to fling in a, a vote for because I've not said it. You, you'd read it when we did it on the podcast. Yeah. I hadn't read it. I'm just going to say very quickly. Anna Burns. 
Anna Burns, Milkman, winner of the Booker Prize and bestseller, sold a quarter of a million copies in three weeks. I know. And, it's a magnificent And not book. difficult and people. Not difficult, everybody. Funny and wise and brilliant. And I bought it off the back of you tweeting about it, John. Oh. And, um, yeah. and I'm reading it at the moment. And the opening sentence, I think, is the most glorious opening sentence I've ever read well, of a novel. Go. It's stunning. I've, I've never seen anything Have you like got it. to the scene where the, the, the almost boyfriend has got all the... He's got all the kind of car bits in the, and, the, and the flags in the... No, oh, not yet. No, the no, garage. No, no. So it's, it's, oh, I'm really fresh I mean, into it. I mean, so it's a properly, properly brilliant book, I think. I am a self-styled Eeyore and <laughs> curmudgeon. <laughs> but even I feel moved to feel faintly optimistic that a book that good can and experimental can win the Booker Prize and become a bestseller. It's so brilliant. So, that, so that's that. My suggestion, I've got two suggestions for what people could go to the shops and treat themselves or others to for Christmas. My first suggestion is the book 100 Lyrics and a Poem by Neil Tennant from the Pet Shop. Could Boys. not agree They're more. Beautifully produced, hardback by Faber with the lovely Albertus font on the front, yep. evoking the Faber poetry of the 40s and 50s. But is a selection edited by Neil Tennant, who, of course, in addition to being a brilliant lyricist, has been a magazine editor himself. And a comic book. Yeah. Uh, illustrator. That's right, yeah. His job was to sort of cut off the cleavage of <laughs> certain characters because British. It? Yeah, the British had different rules to how much <laughs> flesh could be shown. True? Yeah. And, of course, he worked for Smash Hits. Anyway, so, so this is a selection of 100 lyrics footnotes annotated by Neil Tennant. The thing that's so good about it is rather than reproduce only the hits of the Pet Shop Boys, though some of the hits of the Pet Shop Boys are included, he has clearly put a lot of time into thinking what works on the page. Mm. Now, I'm a big Pet Shop Boys fan and there are lyrics reproduced in the book that you know, I couldn't immediately bring the tune to mind and was struck by how good they are as pieces of writing. And I'm not just saying that. That's great. And the poem is quite good as well. Oh, I'm so that was get my, that. that was my first suggestion. And my, my second suggestion, very quickly, is any of the novels of Penelope Fitzgerald. Ah, I love this. Okay. <laughs> okay, so the thing that I have read this year that I've enjoyed more than anything else, I've read seven of Penelope Fitzgerald's nine novels. Uh, <laughs> I, I haven't read the first one or the last He's one. He's a machine. The, He's a terminator. Uh, <laughs> I haven't read the first one or the last one, The Blue Flower, yet, but I'm reading Blue, read Flower. Blue Flower. I'm reading yet. Blue Flower oh, this month. Don't say anything. Uh, and, so, uh, we so have to have a Fitzgerald. Well, the reason I mentioned we're going to do this really fast, the reason we will do a Penelope Fitzgerald episode next year, there is no question in my mind, in fact, or I'm already talking to people about setting that up. We, then we need to debate slightly which one we talk about. But if you want to give somebody a gift, which is a relatively light, funny novel, there's a relatively early one called Human Voices, which is set in the BBC, in BBC Radio during the Second World War, which would appeal to fans of, for instance, Kate Atkinson's transcription, including Kate Atkinson herself, because oh. <laughs> she mentions it in the acknowledgements of that novel. On the other hand, if you want to read one of the later historical novels, I cannot recommend with any more enthusiasm and in an over-earnest way, which some listeners may struggle with, but nevertheless it's true, Penelope Fitzgerald's novel, The Beginning of Spring, which is set in Russia in 1913, is the best novel that I've read this year and one of the best historical novels I have ever read, wow. bar none. And I... I cannot imagine anybody hmm. reading that novel not being, at least in terms of the technique on display, 
it plays so brilliantly on the idea that you know what is about going to happen in Russia uh-huh. three or four years later, and no one else, no else does. does yeah. And no one in the book can know that. And it never dwells on it, and it never labours the point. It's such a beautiful, perfect novel. Mm. Fantastic. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> John. I've got two very quickly. One is, I have to say, completely uh, nakedly a plug for an unbound book, which I am shocked and traumatised by not having had more coverage, which is Marianne Sait Imbecile by Alice Jolly, which I think, again, talk, we're talking about historical novels that take you back to a moment in time and deliver it with such integrity and beauty. And Sally Bailey said, who's a, been a guest on this podcast, who's one of the few people who's engaged with it, said this is a classic of this century and a classic of the last century. And I think it's a bit odd, as many unbound books are, it's written in what looks almost like a sort of ballad form, almost like poetry. So it's although the book itself is nearly 600 pages long, actually it's about 250 pages long, really. Alice has written it as the discovered memoir of a servant from the early... 19th century, the 1820s, in a, a valley in Gloucestershire near Stroud. And Marianne Sait is only preserved, the, the whole book came about because she's preserved in one line when she died. And the line in the, uh, in, in, the, in the parish record is Marianne Sait imbecile. So the book is in a, in a way an attempt to try and completely recover a human being's life. Uh, she's not an imbecile. She has got a hair lip. She is a servant. She's the kind, exactly the kind of voice that history doesn't hear. But she lives through this extraordinary period of enclosure, of machinery being introduced into uh, rural life, of the ideas of Darwin beginning to percolate down. She's the servant of a progressive farmer. It's just, Sally said it, it's like discovering a lost classic you can't believe that nobody else knows. And it was written this year, and, and it's called Mary Ann Sait Imbe- Imbe- Imbecile, and it's by Alice Jolly. You know, you do those things where editors get asked, what is yeah, the thing yeah. that's broken your heart this year? The fact that this hasn't had a review in a national newspaper hmm. breaks my heart. My second book, Naked, absolutely naked, plugging. But as you all know, my much of my the last sort of 15 years of my life has been QI, and I love everything about it. I love the people who are involved in it. But the thing that's made me most happy and proud is something I've had absolutely nothing to do with, which is Dan's podcast. Dan and Anna and Andy and James. And they've created this brilliant podcast, but they've also created a brilliant book on the back of it called The Book of the Year. Oh, thanks. And that's, that's it nice. is... Hey, Dan, is that your book of the year? <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, it was a cheeky. So all I'm, I'm, I'm not... It's, it, this is just, honestly, because it is... It, when people say... What is your non-fiction book that you would give to the people who I would used to, I would have always given a QI book to? I'm going to give them book of the year because it is, it's a, a it's fucking miraculous that you got it out in the way that you got it out. <laughs> but also, it's full of good stuff. I'm going to, I want you to give me two or three little choice nuggets, Dan. Of, yeah, sure. Of stuff that's in there. Well, I just, you said something just now which I've not thought for a, for a while. But when I had the idea for the book, it's the second book. So we did the yeah. first one last year, which is very exciting. Creating a book that needs to be released in the year that you write it. That that turnaround is incredibly fun. But when you do QI research, and John, you know this inside out, you delight in these moments when you find characters from history, just like you're talking about. Uh, Marianne Sait. Yeah. 
these characters, I get lost to the footnotes of history, finding them, finding their story and bringing it up. And there's so many books that used to collate what happened in a year or yeah, almanacs a and all almanacs that. and all that. And I just thought, do you know what? I'd love it one day, if 200 years down the line, there was another whatever podcasts are then, and they find this book, and it tells them about this year, and it has all these characters who didn't go to the front pages of the newspaper being sort of properly recorded so that they're there. You can just enjoy these footnote people who are brought to the main stage, and that's the sort of vision of the book. There's a story I really like in it, which, uh, again, it's not a great story, it just makes me laugh, which is there was a judo final in Dusseldorf this year, and the two finalists <laughs> fought so I'm already badly. already laughing. Yeah, yeah, go on. The two finalists fought so badly, they both came second. <laughs> So there was a podium presentation where the two of them were standing in second place because there was no one on first. There was no national anthem played. They just had to stand awkwardly in silence. It's just stuff like that. That QI moment is, is always a glorious thing where you just get something that is so ludicrous. It's like, you know, discovering that the Spanish national anthem has no words yes. because it's the only national anthem that has no words because it was the words that were written were very Franco-ish. And then they tried to write a new one and nobody could agree because of none of the regions. So they now just play this tune and all the Spanish <laughs> just have to stand there kind of silently. And, and, uh, it's so hey. good. Dan has chosen the brilliant Harpo Speaks by Harpo Marx with Roland Barber. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell you the joy, <laughs> the, the I, joy this brought me. I, I don't think I've enjoyed, I mean, you know, I enjoy all, all our books, but it's like I re, literally, I, I, I could, if I could just live inside this book forever, I would. From the mad beginning right through to the sort of the kind of Hollywood end, it's just, and the gorgeous things that his kids wrote about him at the, at the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, um, Dan, where did, you, where did you first encounter this book? I was a high school kid in Sydney, and I used to go to the secondhand bookshop called Dial a Book, which is very close to where I lived. And I became obsessed at about 14 years old with American comedians, comedians that weren't available in, on TV or in book. I don't know what it was. I just took to Jerry Lewis to begin with and then suddenly went further back and I suddenly found Buster Keaton. And and I was in the bookshop one day and this is the, the only way I could find out about these people because the internet didn't really have that much at the mm. time about them either. And I would just find books that looked like they were talking about someone that was big. And I found this book called Harpo Speaks and I'm holding <laughs> the very copy that I got as a 16 oh year old God. next to me. And I took it home and I started reading it and it just blew my mind. It was, it was so perfectly written. It was so hilarious and humble while also being at the sort of center point of all the biggest names of an era with the writers of like George S. Kaufman um, through to admirers like Salvador Dali, just all these yeah. names kept cropping up. And I'd never seen a Marx Brothers movie. I read the entire book and I'd not seen, and I finally saw one. There was an old channel, you know those channels that just play old movies all the time. We had one in Sydney, TCM it was called, and they played a movie called Love Happy, which I think is acknowledged as the worst Marx Brothers movie. <laughs> it, it, it is, I in that yeah. is. In that it's not even meant to be a Marx Brothers movie. It was meant to be a Harpo Marx solo movie, and the, the other boys needed money at the time, I think, really? and, and they yeah. came in. And I just fell in love. And, um, and that opened me up to the Marx Brothers, which really became my love for many, many years. Which is your favourite Marx Brothers film? I Ooh. want to know if I've seen it. Animal Crackers or Duck Soup. Yeah, yeah Duck, I watched Duck Soup again yesterday. Yeah, I, I remember watching Duck Soup with my son when he was about six. And he kind of, 
he kind of sat there and he kind of he wasn't <laughs> sure he wasn't sure and then there's a bit where Chico goes peanuts 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 to you right yeah that was it my that was it my <laughs> seven-year-old son then ran around the house shouting peanuts to you for the next 48 hours and now really likes the marx brothers so oh, i found a way in the thing about this book is it's like discovering the lodestone of, of 20th century comedy everything that's funny everything that we've ever seen that's funny you sort of feel the marx brothers story has in it and harpo is this incredibly modest a perfect person to tell it better in a way than Groucho or, or Chico because he's, he was famously the person who played the harp and didn't speak. Every catchphrase, every routine, mm. all of that sense of hard work paying off, of, of, of the, the kind of eloquence of, of stand-up comedy. And you realise it, it was coming from somewhere else, but they, they created it out of nothing. Yeah, it, it was born out of vaudeville of them yeah. getting bored doing the same routines. Yeah. And horseplay, that idea of horseplay being, you know, her, yeah. their mum, Minnie, hating horseplay. Yes, yeah. yeah. Just stick to it. Just do what you're told to do. And yeah. Then... And what I think what's most amazing for me about this book is when you guys very kindly invited me on the show, you obviously, it's a big deal to think about what book do you want to talk about? And I, I just thought, honestly, I thought, what book have I read more times than ever <laughs> any other book? And Harpo Speaks is the, is the book and I was a bit nervous because it's it's ghostwritten. Very, it's very closely done with this Roland Barber guy. And the idea of suggesting something that had a a ghostwriter attached to it, I thought, I don't want to bring that to the table, but it's so damn good. Oh. Uh, well, let oh. me tell you, let me give you, I've got joint author credits here. Oh, okay. So Harpo Marx, born November 1888 in New York City, dies September 1964 in L.A., it would have been Harpo's 130th birthday last Friday. Really? So, so wow. we, are, we are just a week on from what would have been his 130th yeah. birthday. I'm going to assume that everyone listening to this kind of knows something about Harpo Marx. The <laughs> ghostwriter, Roland Barber. Now, this is interesting. So he's born in 1920 in New York. He died in 2012 in Portland, Oregon. No. So he had a good run, right? Before he wrote this, he was the author of Somebody Up There Likes Me which is the autobiography yeah, yeah. of Rocky Graziano, which was made into a film in the late 50s starring Paul Newman. Mm -hmm. And after he wrote this, he was the author of a book called The Night They Raided Minsky's. The novel was then made into a film in 1968. And it is a film about the invention of striptease on the Bowery as part of the Bowery vaudeville scene. Right. So he clearly had some background in that world, which he's then bringing to Harpo Speaks. Yeah. And it struck me that what's so interesting about you having chosen this, Dan, is this is like the grandfather, the granddaddy of... All of them. ...of comedians' memoirs. memoirs. And, you yeah, know, yeah. we're recording this just in the Christmas book season when all the comedians' memoirs mm. get published. This is like the... And this clearly isn't the first, but lots of the books... Uh, tend not to get matched with a ghostwriter who's quite so simpatico. And I think that's the one of the reasons it's great you chose something with a ghostwriter because this guy did a bang-up job. Yeah, it shows how good it can be <laughs> with a with a great ghostwriter. Harpo always talked the book down because Groucho wrote a book as well, which is called Groucho and Me, which is fantastic. I don't know if you've read that. I do highly, highly recommend that. It doesn't have the same heart that this does. It doesn't have the same... The stories that come out of this book are extraordinary. There's a whole chapter about him becoming the first ever American to perform in Russia. Yeah. 
Um, oh, that bit is amazing. Incredible. incredible. And the whole tale is extraordinary because he's going in at a time when there was a lot of spy uh, espionage stuff going on. So immediately he's seen to be someone who might be going in for alternative reasons. And he stopped at immigration on the way in. They open up his suitcase to see what he's got. And of course, it's all of Harpo's <laughs> stuff for the live show. So it's fake guns and it's carrots, carrots and, and knives. knives and swords. And, and they're going, what the hell is this? We, we've busted you. And he thought he was busted, but he explained, I'm doing this. And he, he gets he gets over there. And there's these incredible passages about him playing to the people who've booked him in silence as they don't get it. And having to rewrite narrative around the absurdity. Them going, They said to him after he did all of his old tricks that he used to do in the Marx Brothers movies, what is the point of this? That's like, right. Why? Yeah. why? <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Just, yeah. so that's brilliant, that bit, because they yeah. say to him, we'll fix it for you. And they have a couple of Russian dramatists write a five-minute prologue and a brief epilogue. Do you, I love that bit yeah. where he goes, I have no idea what this stuff was about, but they were right. Yeah. <laughs> they, they needed to frame it for the Russian audiences so they'd get the five-minute prologue, no laughs. Harpo would come out <laughs> honk the horn, do the knife bit, um, play the harp, rapturous applause, people falling on the ground laughing, epilogue to wind it all up, 10-minute standing ovation. Yeah, and and he called them, because these two writers, which he clearly saw that they knew what they were doing, and he worked with the great George S. Kaufman and Maury Riskind, I think, Morris Riskind was his mm. name. Yeah, he nicknamed them, you know, um, George F. Kaufmanski and he, he he saw them as his as his uh, equivalents and um, he did a six week tour of Russia and it's just extraordinary that in 1933 I was it I mean it's a it's a really bizarre time and it has the most fantastic ending because he's leaving and he gets met up by this man who says I need you to smuggle back papers into America. You're going to have to strap them to your leg and we're going to have to get you to do this. Are you up for it? And he said, yeah, of course, no problem. Absolutely fine. He even leaves the room where his chaperone, who's part of the government looking after him and says, hey, I've just been made a spy. I'm going to... And she, she thinks you're joking again, aren't you? Because she has no idea when yeah, he's joking yeah, yeah. or not. Ah, uh, this is a joke. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. then he's about to board uh, the train and the boat to get back to America when suddenly someone reports to him that one of the reviewers who had made a terrible review of his show just one of the reviewers who didn't get it was executed and he goes what and they say it's not because of the bad review it turns out he was also smuggling things across oh the country god. and he suddenly thought what that oh my god i've got this thing strapped to my leg so he has to go past the immigration where they stopped him for his suitcase full of <laughs> knives again but fortunately they now knew who he was yeah so they're like it's oh come on problem. through yeah and there's this beautiful story of him, the most famous man in the world to a lot of, I mean, he was huge, sitting on a boat back to America with a whole boat knowing who he is, never leaving his cabin because he's too petrified he's going to be busted and he has yep. to sit yeah. just playing solitaire with yeah, himself. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, it's just, it's, and that's just one chapter of this extraordinary story. We'll be back in just a sec. Have you got a bit you could you could read us? Have you got like I, a favourite bit? Yeah, I'll tell you. This is a very very short, super short extract. What I really loved, and I forgot that he had done this in the book, is that he does this thing where in the early days of the Marx Brothers, he takes you on the tour, gig yeah. by gig. It's beautiful. He has an incredible memory for not only what they did and how they evolved, but all the acts that were on yeah. the scene at the time. It's so beautiful it's hearing. A bit of social history. 
Yeah. So um, Lorado, Texas is one of the places he played. And in Lorado, we shared the bill with one of the saddest vaudeville acts I ever saw. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> the musical Cal Milkers. <laughs> I love this. The musical cow milkers. It was a team. The guy led a live cow on stage, and while his wife, in a sunbonnet and pinafore, squatted on a stool and milked the cow, they sang duets. After the opening night, the manager fired them. They would be replaced on the bill, he said, with a second solo by the Marx boy who wears the wig and plays the big zither or whatever you call it. So Minnie, who is harpo's mom who is really the hero of the the story in a way totally. she she took these boys and made them who they were took them out of new york moves yeah. into chicago puts them on stage they loved her to death and there was no sense of her being that sort of pushy performance mom this was this is someone who no, truly he, loved he, her kids. he says something beautiful somewhere he says she was so beautiful she was almost as beautiful as minnie his mother which mm, is yeah incredible. yeah so Minnie this isn't further down in the extract Minnie came down with a sudden attack of loyalty this is for the musical cow milkers and motherly love Mr. and Mrs. musical cow milker had their small children Minnie went to bat for them she yelled and wept and begged for the couple to be rehired at length her eloquence swayed the theater manager all right all right he said i'll take him back i'll put him on i'll put him on in place of the marx brothers you're closed and that's <laughs> and that's the end of that entry but he goes through the entire tour and you watch them evolving through every single gig that they're playing and what's interesting in this book is how much of it is about his charmed life there's actually relatively little about working with the Marx Brothers, right? Yeah. There's an awful lot about the things he saw and the people he knew. He was he was accepted golf, into yeah. part of the Algonquin circle. So yes. all the people you mentioned, Dorothy Parker. And uh, he, he writes a lot about a, I guess, forgotten man called Alexander Walcott, Walcott yeah. who was a theatre critic yeah. and writer for The New Yorker. It's fascinating, and, um, that Walcott. I had to go and look him up. You know, Harpo, for someone who didn't speak, is king of the anecdote in oh, this book, yeah. right? I mean, that's one of the brilliant... These things are... The stories of that are, solid are, gold. ...have been told and retold. Yeah, right? and this, this, this one here, this was my favourite. When Noel Coward wrote he was leaving London for the <laughs> Riviera, we journeyed through the night to Paris to catch him between trains and give him a surprise welcome to France. I met his boat train, disguised as a ragged, bearded street musician, playing a miniature harp. Alec Walcott concealed himself in the shadows of the station to spy on the scene. What I had in mind was to latch on to Noel, playing as badly as I could, to see if I could annoy him to the point of calling a policeman. <laughs> Noel stepped off the train. I stopped playing and held out my hat for tips. Without seeming to pay me any special attention, Noel dropped a sixpence into the hat and said, I've never seen you looking better, Harpo, old boy. <laughs> now, tell me where the devil Alec is. <laughs> <laughs> It's, so good. it's worth just saying, um, just if you want to, the listener right now wants to put in their head, what is this book the equivalent of? This is the sort of the unheard of David Nivens, yeah. Bring on the Empty Horses or The, the Moon's, Moon's a Balloon. The Moon's a Balloon, which is the greatest book ever written. Let me give everybody. We normally do the blurb. This is better than a blurb. Okay. This me begins to sound like an unexciting fellow, doesn't he? Maybe I am, but I've been lucky enough in my time to do a number of things that most people never get round to doing. I've played piano in a whorehouse. I've smuggled secret papers out of Russia. I've taught a gangster mob how to play pinchy-winchy. I've played croquet with Herbert Byatt Swope while he kept Governor Al Smith waiting on the phone. I've gambled with Nick the Greek, sat on the floor with Greta Garbo, sparred with Benny Leonard, horsed around with the Prince of Wales, played ping-pong with George Gershwin. George Bernard Shaw has asked me for advice. Oscar Levant has played private concerts for me at a buck a throw. I've golfed with Ben Hogan and Sam Sneed. I've basked on the Riviera with Somerset Maugham and Elsa Maxwell. 
I've been thrown out of the casino at Monte Carlo. Flush with triumph at the poker table, I've challenged Alexander Woolcott to anagrams and Alice Dur Miller to a spelling match. I've given lessons to some of the world's greatest musicians. I've been a member of the two most famous round tables since the days of King Arthur, sitting with the <laughs> finest creative minds of the 1920s at the Algonquin in New York and with Hollywood's sharpest professional wits at the Hillcrest. The truth is, I had no business doing any of these things. I couldn't read a note of music. I never finished the second grade. But I was having too much fun to wrecking myself as an ignorant upstart. <laughs> I mean, so it's like a this totally, is so, totally irresistible. So, premise. so this was done with uh, we, with the writer Roland Barber. We were saying, and this is a a rare clip of Roland Barber's tapes oh, of wow. the recordings that he made of Harpo. I didn't know those existed. Wow. So here here is Harpo speaking about Harpo. One night I'm playing and I felt sick and I practically keeled off the stool and she says, get that son of a bitch back on that stool play. I had, there was a couple of customers there. So again, I fell off the stool. She says, what the hell is the matter with him to one of the girls? And she said, well, he must be sick. So they sent for a doctor and he looked at me, the doctor, and he said, he's got the measles. She says, get him the hell out of here. I don't want any sick Jews around me. <laughs> I mean, that. what I find interesting about that is that actually shows you he's much tougher sounding than you think he might be, right? Yeah. And you had to be tough to live the life that they led for 15, 20 years. Yeah. I mean, they're in vaudeville on the road Harsh. for a I long mean, the, time. The, the right? the you can hear in his accent there as well. You can hear that real New York, uh, New York right? So, so you can hear it in the films. I noticed it in Duck Soup yesterday. They don't call him Harpo. Hop they call him Hapo, Hapo, right? Yeah. And they, it's not Chico. No. It's Chico. 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 So called because he was always chasing after chicks, right? Yeah. yeah. Although he says it's not. He says there's another reason why he's called Chico, <laughs> but it isn't. It's called, it's called Chico, right? Gummo. I love it. And Gummo and Gummo Zeppo. And Zeppo. Yeah, I've just uh, great QI fact. Come on, you know you. This, had, you this was my this was my one of my first this ever is literally QI one facts. Of, this yeah. is when this is when Dan got the job at QI. Yeah, it's an incredible Let's fact. I discovered that the clamp that held and dropped the atomic bomb over big Hiroshima, boy. big boy, the clamp device was invented by Zeppo Marx. Whoa! Yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> he was an inventor. He had the most extraordinary life as Epo yeah. Marx, post the Marx Brothers. Yeah, I've just suddenly remembered. I cannot believe I forgot this. I, years ago, really wanted to make something about the Marx Brothers, a sort of documentary. And through Twitter, I managed to make a few contacts with people who knew the children of. And I had a two-hour conversation with Bill Marx, the son of Harpo, ah. on the phone. And he was saying about this, particularly that Russian episode of Harpo going over to Russia, that would have made the most extraordinary movie. And it's a movie that he wants to make because there's a lot of untold stuff that he didn't tell Roland uh, that would make it in. And it was wow. a largely a thing about, um, uh, it's a huge love story as well between him and his wife, Susan, that he doesn't touch on in the book as well. They were going through troubling times. Yeah, it was pretty extraordinary talking to someone associated and child of adopted child of this god and you know he's got all the hats and the wigs and the horns and the and the harps and you know you could hear in the background him rustling through the the stuff and you're saying oh man so i said i watched duck soup again yesterday yeah and the thing the thing that comes off the screen really powerfully 
is they don't actually play nice, the Marx Brothers. No. This is the thing. Because it's old, you assume it must be quite quaint in some way. Mm. But Harpo in particular, like there's, I found this brilliant... There's a great book by a guy called Danny Peary. He wrote three volumes of these called Cult Movies. Cult Movies 2 and more cult movies. And the first cult movies book was written in the 70s, and it's a book where his, his criteria for selection was... If I show this film at midnight in a rep cinema, will a crowd come and see it? So there is no VHS. There is no internet, clearly. This is just what audiences would pay to see. And they would come out to see Marx Brothers films. And he writes brilliantly about Duck Soup. And here's this description of Harpo by Danny Peary, which is, uh, which is on the money, I think. Harpo may be the team's link to silent comedy, but his character is also the missing link in man's evolution, an unsuccessful <laughs> stage in man's development. <laughs> he is part man, part beast, a creature whose sole concerns are eating, grabbing blondes and destroying everything in his path. He sleeps with animals. He does in, in Duck Soup. Yeah, he beds does. down with a horse. Yeah. And eats everything, capital letters, Everything, including cigars, telephones and shoelaces. He is a wild man, violence personified. He cuts everything in sight with scissors, even cutting out Kennedy's pocket and making it into a peanut bag. He burns Kennedy's hats. He carries a gun and a blowtorch in his remarkably well-supplied <laughs> coat. When Chico and Harpo are together, it reminds you of the guy who walks his unleashed dog down the street and cares not a hoot that he is biting people. No doubt about it. Harpo should be on a leash. Wow. You know that what? That's so great funny. writing, and that is that, true. Yeah. You know, that's that, so great. Because he is he is kind of id, isn't he, Harpo? He's yeah. like no, he's uncontrolled, wild. Yeah. That's the glory of this book, is watching that character from his first thing where he does the gookie. You know, where he kind of yes. he kind of really upsets the shoemaker in the shop window and pulls this terrible face. You did which I'm I'm thinking that lovely thing you put on Twitter this morning. That must be the Gookie. It is the Gookie, yes. yes. It's just, <laughs> the Gookie is the name they gave the face that he would put, but you yeah. would recognise it if you saw it. I will, I will tweet it again. And it's, a, it's watching how, this, how, how somebody who fails at school and, is a, and has none of the obvious talents of his other brothers finds his way into... I mean, it's like, you know, when you, everybody says, be yourself, you know, just, you know, just find yeah. the thing that you can do that nobody yeah. else can. I mean, this story is the most... Brilliant example of that I think I've ever read. So in the tradition of QI and Christmas, I've prepared now a little quiz. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> for you all, because we are not talked about the art of the comedian's autobiography or memoir, and it is a subject, and to quote Douglas Adams, fraught with And interest. I have to say, Dan is a bit of a scholar of the comedian's memoir. Well, let's find out. Well, we're about to find, find out. out. Yeah, that's going to be huge. Okay, so I'm going to give you the titles of five or six comedian's biographies. Okay. Oh, and you have to name the... Hands, author, fingers on Who buzzers? is the comedian, right? Okay. One. Well, I'll start with an easy one. Okay. The Custard Stops at Hatfield. <laughs> Um, Michael Benteen or Les Dawson? You can't just throw... I'm not... I'm just who is just it? name? Oh, um, it's really famous. I'm surprised. Mm, no, I've got a bit of a gap in the British. Look. Hatfield. That's the giveaway, isn't it? Mm. Oh, well, well, it's why, by, why don't you answer, Nikki? I don't. I'm just trying to <laughs> rack some of my brains of a comedian from Hatfield. Kenny Everett. Kenny oh. Everett. Oh. And I think that is quite a well-known one. That's like the most... Well, yeah, okay, oh, so, no, right. so we're on okay, a so real loser. So yeah, one, and I'm one up. Right, one up. I'm one up. <laughs> Two, how to talk dirty and influence people. Lenny Bruce. It yeah. is Lenny Bruce. I think I might have even got that. All right, okay. yeah, well, Three, 
my autobiography. Charlie Chaplin. Charles Chaplin. Oh, well done. Bravo. Yes. Well done. Okay, very good. High five. Charles Chaplin, you are right. Absolutely, Chaplin, yeah. yeah. It's Hello from Him. Oh. Uh, it's got to be Ronnie Barker. It is Ronnie Barker. For a bonus point, High Hopes. Ronnie Corbett? Yeah. <laughs> That's Ronnie Corbett. I was about to say that because I interviewed him about High Hopes in at the Hay Festival, which is another story which we won't go into. <laughs> I am I once I have a bit of an allergic reaction to him. He make, it just makes me go Who Ronnie Corbett? Oh, in the yeah. flesh or in, just on, well, on, on screen? On TV for a long time and then I once split I mean he's not alive anymore, but I then saw him in person and, and physically Made you feel even worse. This <laughs> is like Austin Powers saying he doesn't sick. like carnies because they've got small hands. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, right, hang on. Next. Where, where do we get to? Life and Laughing. Ooh. One of the best selling books of the last few years. That's oh. its title Life and Laughing. Really? Oh. It's not Dick Emery, is it, Andy? It's not Dick <laughs> are Emery. They're British. You are awful, John. Are they British or are they American? British. Lenny Henry? Michael McIntyre. Oh! oh and then finally, little goes a long way. Uh, uh, so, uh, got to be what's Ronnie Corbett. No, it's got to <laughs> be uh, the one uh, little and large, whatever it's called. It's little goes a long way. My own story by, by Sid, Sid Little. little. <laughs> now I've got a copy of this here. Oh. Now this book was oh. made famous by Robin Ince on his book club. Oh yeah. I'm going to read the bit that Robin used to read because it is sensational. I saw Robin talk about this book and I sent off for a copy, which I got from 1P from Amazon Marketplace. <laughs> and when it arrived, it's a signed copy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, sa- it says, to Phyllis, be happy, Sid Little. Oh, no. So She wasn't so, happy for that long. She gave it to the charity shop. No, Jesus Christ. In April 1974, Eddie and I were offered the opportunity of appearing at the London Palladium. The star of the show was Cliff Richard. Eddie and I have always admired Cliff. In fact, I think one of the first songs we did together back in the days of the Stonemasons was Living Doll, so you can understand our excitement. (laughs) I'll always remember the party he gave on the last night of the show. It was at his flat in the Marlebone Road and Sherry and I were invited. It was a fantastic home. As you walked in, you could see all the silver and platinum discs on the wall. I remember that the food was brilliant. It was curry, which I really like, (laughs) as does Cliff, I think. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if, you're, if you're ever in Ealing, there's a great Indian restaurant there called the Taj Mahal. It was actually one of Cliff's favourite haunts. While we were in London, Sheree and I were always bumping into him there. We met him once after he recorded A Little In Love. He came over and said, Hello, thanks for dedicating the song to me, Cliff, I said. What do you mean, he said. <laughs> well, I replied, A Little In Love. He did laugh. Oh, anyway, yeah. back to the party. It's, it's packed. <laughs> it is packed with anecdotes. So like that. That's another hard I, I, speaks. I, I mean, it's not a comedian, but I've, I've had such joy publishing Dave Hill from Slade. And, oh, cool. and, and, and the thing about Dave is that he's, he's very, very funny and a very good storyteller. But one of the things I love most about him, as I said, you know, as you do early on, you say, how did you feel, Dave, about the uh, Vic and Bob kind of, you know, Slade at home parody? I said, oh, oh, I loved it. Oh, I absolutely loved it. He said, it was, it's, it's very funny. And he said, that, the thing about it is, he said, you know, it's better to be on a show like that that everybody loves, very warm-spirited, very generous, you know, uh, comedy show. And then he's paused and he said, 
and Nod and I were the funny ones in the band. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dan, what makes these books work, do you think? And what makes this one in particular work? The distance of time. He wrote it at the end of his life. And there's a lot of comic autobiographies now coming out of people in their 40s. And they don't make an effort, for me, to capture what it means to be not just your life, but the lives around you, like the the milk, the people with the cow. You know, you, your job, I think, with certain industries and, and entertainment, I think, is largely one, is to record those people that you passed along the way who yeah, could have been yeah. as big or bigger than you were and give them their little moment to say, we were all in this together. And that's what this book has for me. It just absolutely nails that period of comedy. You can smell it coming through the words. And I can't think of a modern autobiography from a comedian that quite does that in the way that Harpo Speaks does. It's very interesting how his heart, his commitment is clearly to those first... It's before they get to Hollywood. What's so interesting is he clearly thought the films are really a cash-in on the... Once we make it to on Broadway, we've made it. That's yeah. fundamentally it, isn't yeah. it? The act is fixed after that, really. You know, they know who the persona are and they're rich and they start meeting other people and they and they kind of come together for the movies, but not so much. That brilliant it's the, thing where he says, I just wanted, I, I decided I was going to be a character in the neighbourhood. He, he wasn't going to be good at fighting people. He wasn't going to be doing that. So he decided he was going to be a character and he makes a character and that character amazingly sustains him yeah. for his whole life. It's, and and also... Um, how how wonderful that in every single Marx Brothers movie you get two moments per movie of seeing the comedian get stripped away and Harpo sitting and just playing the harp, yeah. a full song with no interruption. And he says in the book, this is me. You are seeing the guy at home who is in love with his instrument. And the same with Chico or Chico playing yeah, the yeah, piano. Yeah. It's it's the most stunning moment to go from, as we were saying before, this id, this this absurdist, no rules character to someone who's so in love with this, and you and you're there for him. You allow him to do it, and you look forward to those moments in the movie. So when the book came out, um, Groucho did a favour for his brother and had him as a surprise guest on his game show. You bet your life. <laughs> oh, yeah. So and I've got a clip of that here. Groucho, Marika, Abba. And Charles... And a happy new year, isn't it? <laughs> Groucho, Marika Abba, and Charles Kephart are waiting to talk to you. So folks, come in, please, and meet Groucho Marx. Yes. Welcome to the Groucho Show. Say the secret word and... <laughs> Abba! is the book my brother Harpo wrote. It's called Harpo Speaks. It's all about life and show business. Very good book, too. <laughs> I didn't see how he's going to make any money on that book if he keeps giving them away. I really, I know, see, the thing is, you've really got to, please look that clip yeah, up on YouTube. Watch it's it. really funny. Harpo manages to get about six bits of business into a 30-second appearance. <laughs> absolutely fantastic. Hey, I asked some people online, some yeah. friends of the show and some people I know online on Twitter to name their favourite comedian's memoirs. Yeah. And several of them said Harpo Speaks straight away. So I asked Lisa Evans and she said Harpo Speaks straight away. But I also asked Louis Barth and Joel Morris 
Robin Ince and Danny Baker. And what's quite interesting is several of them said the same books. So they said Harpo Speaks. They said Crying with Laughter by Bob Monkhouse, yes. which I have read, which is a... Have you read? Have anyone only read, read it, but not read it? Oh. It, it? Funnily enough, I would have mentioned that because I think it's unexpected joy. That book, it's an astounding book yeah. for several reasons. Also, Born Standing Up by Steve Martin. I read that. Yeah, you like that book, don't I you? I loved it. It's 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 not the book that you were expecting when you start reading it. As in, you know, you think Steve Martin's going to write a sort of hilarious account, almost like Harpo Marx and capture stuff. But he found it a very painful process getting up on stage every night and he's very it's very heartfelt but you have to readjust your expectation and suddenly realize you're sitting on a much deeper beautiful book than you were you were sort of bringing yourself in for but yeah i recommend that as well i love that book as well i saw steve martin talk about that book in new york he did a steve martinish thing which he was on for an hour and for 58 minutes of that hour he was the sober author steve martin and then he did two minutes where he switched the comedy machine on. It was like everyone in the room was being sucked towards the stage. <laughs> it was an incredible display of technique, charisma, anything. He could do it if he wants to, just doesn't want to. Well, I, I made a calculation about the fact that when he was over a few years ago to do his live banjo band, I thought, okay, this guy's going to be on stage. There's no way, surely, that he can't... He'll find himself just going into routines, surely. So I booked myself a ticket, a front row seat, uh, on my own, and uh, I sat there, and I would say 30% of a 70-minute show was stand-up from Steve Martin. Really? And it wow. was incredible. Yeah, of course, incredible. right? Incredible. Yeah, because he can really um, do it. Sorry, there's one more book that got mentioned a lot, and I must share this with you. I was saying when Dan came in that I kind of resented having to record the podcast tonight because I started reading this book on the way here. I got it out of the London Library. I borrowed it from the London Library. I have started reading it. Everybody recommended The Fool on the Hill by Max Wall. Yeah. You read that? I haven't, no, so I'm excited to. Just, just, uh, just this one tiny bit. So he's gone on tour, and he can't, he can't get in touch with his wife. And he, they live in Jersey. When I got to Gatwick, I phoned to Jersey from the airport. No reply. I phoned a neighbour who went round to the front door and found newspapers stuffed in the letterbox and too much milk on the step. Everything is silent, the neighbour told me. So I phoned Jennifer's mother, but Jennifer answered. I have left you, she said. Arriving home in Jersey, I entered an empty house and found a distressing note left on the table. Another fait accompli, folks. I put the kettle on. I have put the kettle on all my life, I think, when my world is falling apart. I made tea and reread the note. I will not bore you with all its contents, but the concluding words are seared into my memory. You will end up in one room, alone with nothing. (laughs) (laughs) And the laughs, the laughs keep coming, everyone. (laughs) This book is absolutely fantastic. I started reading. So, so, so those are all good tips. I think it's Um, not in print, of course. I I know you're rushing out, Dan, but I just, just a tiny, quick Brian Blessed, because I know you are the. You are oh, Brian right. Blessed's vicar on earth. Yes, you yeah. You know more Brian Blessed stories than anyone else. Well, because I've met Brian a few times. The one, times. The one I like telling most is when I first met him, yeah. which is he was on Museum of Curiosity. It was our first series, and so we, were, we didn't know what we were doing, and I managed to book Brian right at the last minute. Literally, we were recording on a Saturday, I think, and he was, uh, he was confirmed at Friday evening with a voicemail that he left me, which went on for about 20 minutes. <laughs> and actually, no, I'm going to swap anecdotes because this is the one I rarely said, is 
I did some filming with Brian. I went to his house in the countryside, and he has this little shed where he calls his explorer's shed, and he has all his stuff. And it was this long day of filming, and the guy does not stop talking. He's just brilliant at talking. It just keeps going and keeps going. It has no logic. And I was so tired from filming that as I sat on the couch listening to him, I fell asleep. And I just couldn't keep my eyes open. And I remember bringing my eyes back open. What It must have been five minutes later, ten minutes later, and he was still looking at me talking. He hadn't... <laughs> He had not stopped. It was his book. You know what? His book is great. It's brilliant. It's really good. It's the chapter in Brian Bless's book about Peter O'Toole. About, Absolutely. About super, knowing Peter O'Toole know, for many, superb. many years is superb. Uh, all of these books that we've talked about, including Harpo Speaks, you can obviously order them through the, uh, the, the backlisted website. And you'll be giving money to your favourite independent retailer if you do that. It's through Hive. I, mean, I think what I love about this book, just to wrap up about Harpo Speaks, is it actually is clearly, it has clearly been written. There's been a tendency, I think certainly in the last few years, to smooth out some of these books too much so that you're keeping an eye on the publisher wants to sell cereal to a newspaper. You know, A lot of the time they tend to be accounts of things you already know told by the person the things happened to but in fact they can't remember because they've told the story so many times or it's kind of been smoothed out a little too much what i like with this book is even though it was ghosted it's so well ghosted this felt like the book harpo wanted to write mm. you know what i mean yeah. it's about the things that matter to harpo marx not necessarily to the audience that might be reading it and certainly the first 200 pages that evocation of his growing up in new york city at the turn of the century vaudeville all that stuff it's tremendously valuable isn't it yeah yeah it's stunning it really it's just a great book it's just flat out a yeah. great book and the, the lovely notes from his kids at the end i just love from billy dad could harmonize music like an angel but not the clothes he wore i can still hear mum gasping at the sight of dad coming downstairs before they went out for an evening his wardrobe was beautifully tailored his accessories impeccable but his selection was something else again striped tie with checkered shirt under plaid suit you knew he was in a room mom gave up trying to change him like all the rest of us she loved him for what he was a free spirit and that is finally just the feeling that you get from this book it's yeah absolute yeah. poverty yeah. i mean real poverty um, and unfortunately, that is all we have time for this week. Um, thank you to Dan. Thank you so much for having me. No, please, bring a horn next time. <laughs> thank you to Nikki, our producer. Thank you to the... the Sponsors. <laughs> Sponsors. <laughs> no, just, just, I had, <laughs> and thank you to the slapstick team at Unbound, <laughs> our sponsors for this and every other episode. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook and you can find us at batlisted.fm where all our episodes are archived and there are notes about each show. <laughs> Thank you for listening. See you in a fortnight. You can choose to listen to Batlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.